Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. I'm Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. I'm joined by my MMU colleagues, Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. And by Liz Hannaford. Hi, Liz. Hi, Pete. And uh, well, Liz, let's start off about where are we? Because we're not certainly not at Manchester Metropolitan Uni campus today, are we? We're definitely not. We're all in our own homes. So I'm sat um, in what I laughably call my, my study. It's basically a little more than a cupboard. But I'm looking out on a very sunny, sort of miniature little park that's across the road from me. So it's actually quite pleasant. Jess, what about you? I'm in in my study at home, um, looking out onto a very sunny day, looking out onto the cul-de-sac. So, yeah, I'm sort of hunkering down, um, hoping to get out and get some fresh air shortly as well. Yeah, well, for listeners, I'm I'm kind of hunkered down in in the spare room in my house with... um, with a big, great big pillow in front of me and uh, a rug hanging over the the uh, computer monitors and a duvet on my head. And I'm absolutely loving this because this takes me right back to being a foreign correspondent and reporting from, from inside wardrobes in hotel rooms and such like, which everybody's always laughed about. But now, listening to various podcasts over the last couple of days, I've um, heard Anushka Stana from The Guardian talking about exactly the same yeah. thing and various other people. Everyone's getting into broadcasting from under a duvet, and we'll come to that in a bit more detail later on. Sounds like you were now a correspondent. Your life as a foreign correspondent, did you ever do this kind of thing as well? Um, I wasn't a foreign correspondent, but I did a lot of producing, um, you know, out in out in the, the sticks and various hotels, but definitely wrapping, wrapping yourself up in a curtain. That works quite well as well. Um, and certainly at home, when I do podcasts at home, I, I do it under the duvet, usually, yeah. Sometimes with a torch as well, because it's quite, kind of quite gloomy under there. Yeah, I've got a tiny little chink of light coming in <laughs> over my left shoulder, so I don't actually need a torch, which is great. But, uh, but anyway, so with this cor- coronavirus lockdown biting down on, on every aspect of life here in the UK and across much of the world, we decided it was time to look at how journalists are finding ways of carrying on their work in these difficult and absolutely unique circumstances. Now, we'll have a look at news gathering in big organisations such as the BBC in a moment, and also how in individual freelancers are finding ways of surviving but first we've also been hearing from some of our own former students on how they're covering this once in a lifetime story as part of their first ever jobs in journalism now Liz you've been speaking to some of them over well this morning but but over the last couple of days yeah and it's been an absolute joy speaking to them I'm just so proud of how they've used the skills that they learned at university and really risen to the challenge of reporting in this as you say completely unique circumstances and some of them have only just started their jobs they're months in some cases only weeks into their new job so they haven't had the usual luxury of you know getting to know their colleagues in the office and gradually getting into the swing of a new job no they all you know no sooner have they arrived then they're told to go work from home and and do the best they can and and they are they're really rising to the challenge what's nice is that um most of the ones that i've spoken to are um, sort of community reporters. So, you know, the, the, the bog standard day-to-day work of a community reporter is, you know, local events, fairly low-key events, but very much on the ground, being really close with the audiences they serve, which of course now is becoming the big story. And those relationships that they built up and that trust that they built up with their audiences and organizations, charities, businesses on the ground is really paying dividends and people are coming to them with their stories because now the big story is how communities are coming together, banding together to support each other. Um, and so I was speaking to Rami Mwamba, who's uh, one of our graduates. He started his job at the Manchester Evening News in um, autumn last year, I think it was. And um, he says he, he spoke of it being a real privilege that these people were now coming to him with their stories. And um, there was one story he spoke about with a local care home appealing for people to write letters to residents who obviously weren't getting visitors anymore. So he put that out on Facebook and then the care home were inundated with all these lovely letters. So that gave him another article to write about. Um, and then uh, another student working um danielle Rowe, she's working as a community content curator for reach plc and again she was saying that you know these stories people want to hear these stories positive stories yes they need to know about the death tolls and the 
um, stockpiling and all those stories. But people also want to know about the positive stories, how people are coming together. And those are often stories which can get overlooked by the public, bigger publications. So they're able to pick up on them and be kind of like the light in the dark was how she put it at a time where people do need to come together rather than just focusing on the negatives. And she was saying that the response from the audience has been incredible. Their engagement has gone through the roof. In fact, all the, um, the graduates that I spoke to said the same, their local engagement has, has really you know, doubled in some cases because people are desperate for the news. Um, another student, Dan Davis, who we're gonna hear from in a bit, um, who's working in local commercial radio. And he was saying that his mates who would normally never bother watching the news or listening to a news bulletin are now really into, into the news. So that's probably something that we'll, we'll talk about in a little moment. So, um, so yeah, it's also a tough time for, for our graduates as well because they, you know, they're having to work at home at a time when they would have appreciated being in the newsroom with their colleagues and their mentors, getting some advice. And so they can feel a bit lost, I think, um, at home. But at the same time, they're very aware of the magnitude of this story. You know, they're still trainees, they're still apprentices, and yet they're working on the bigger story of a, a generation. And, and Rami, who's at the um, Ashley Evening News, he was saying that, you know, he feels like he's you've got this responsibility, not just to today's audience, but to future generations as well, because as he puts it, you're documenting human history on a local scale. And in decades from now, when people in Salford, which is his area that he covers, want to know what happened there during the coronavirus epidemic, they'll be looking in the Manchester Evening News archive and finding his stories about you know, writing letters to a care home. And so that's, that's overwhelming and it's a real privilege as well. Okay, so you mentioned Dan Davis at uh, at Bower Radio. So let's hear a bit from Dan Davis now. Across Cumbria and Southwest Scotland, CFM. Prince Charles has tested positive for coronavirus. The Prince of Wales, who's 71, is thought to be in good spirits. He's self-isolated. A lot of the people that work for Bower work in Manchester. So there's usually about, I'd say there's probably about 200 people usually in the office. Um, whereas now there is just, there's probably about six of us, I think, um, which, which are just the newsreaders. And then there's a few presenters in as well. Um so things have changed massively in terms of the the atmosphere and what it, and what it's like in there. Um, there's not the the usual, you know, massive news team support network that we have because um, all our reporters are currently working from home. Um, so yeah, in terms of the new the the content, it does at the moment feel like everything is is coronavirus for us at the moment. And how does how do the reporters and and you as the kind of the, how does the news gathering operation work if everybody's dispersed like this? Yeah, we've had to kind of get used. To, I mean, I'm fairly new to it anyway, so we've had to kind of get used to having a reporter that's that's usually either in the office or at the scene somewhere uh, to someone that's based solely at home because they can't obviously leave the house. Uh, um, and, and interview people. Um, a lot of our reporters are actually in isolation because their housemates have got, um, you know, coughs and stuff. So they literally can't leave the house. Um, so at the moment, we're having to liaise with them, you know, have uh, several meetings with them throughout the day on, um, you know, via FaceTime or Teams or whatever. Um, and it's it, it has proven difficult because it's something that we've never had to deal with before. I mean, I've only been in it a few months, but uh, well, about six months. But um, the some of the people that have been there for years have never <laughs> had to deal with anything like this before. So it's definitely a task trying to liaise with your reporter while also trying to compile a news bulletin and, you know, monitor things and, yeah, so obviously everything's had to be done by by phone as well in terms of interviews. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds like it may be something that we might have to get used used to, you know, for for some time. Because even though you know, even if the immediate restrictions get lifted in a few weeks' time, there's still going to be a lot of isolation going on. So you've now you're now in the position of of you're going to be broadcasting from home as well. Is that right? 
Yeah, so um, I, I didn't think that I would end up doing this because I thought they'd keep a few people in the office. I think they're going to keep sort of a core team, about two or three people in the office, just so that there's people there um, if we sort of need them or whatever. But uh, yeah, so yesterday um, I was the next person to be <laughs> chosen to take, literally, so my desk at work is now in my bedroom. So tell, um, tell me, what what's the setup that you've got there? What does it look like? Paint, paint so us a at the picture, moment, as they say in radio. Yeah, so at the moment, we've we're not, um, not got everything in there yet. So um, in terms of what I've got, so I've got two computer screens. I have to use one for, like, monitoring and stuff like that, you know, TweetDeck and all that sort of stuff. Then the other computer screen for my news compiling and, and all of that, and, and that's where I record my news as well. Um, and then I've got um, two big monitors that are also on the, on the desk, um and then uh, obviously keyboard mouse um but also on uh, which isn't there yet is today which i'll be taking home with me um a stand and a microphone which will go straight into um obviously the the uh the monitor and then obviously what i'll have to do then is so <laughs> i think what i'm going to try and do is is make sort of a fort with a, with a duvet so that I don't have to just slump it over me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's it's definitely something something new. I mean, I mean, I guess one of the other things is kind of bandwidth and stuff. So how are you actually going to get your mic voice out on the air? How does that happen? Well, so yeah, the uh, the first person to try this did it yesterday. She who re- uh, reads the news for Hits Radio. Um, and when I was listening to, because I was listening to some of her test audio just to see how she sounded from home, because of course the mics aren't um, as good quality as they would be in the studios at, at work. Um, and at, at first, when I was listening to to the to them raw, they they sounded massively different to what they do in the studio. But funnily enough, like when they went out on air, it did sound. I, I don't think you could really tell a difference. Um, so I think it's going to be okay. It's going to take a lot of practice, which I think is why they've given me this week to sort of get used to things and try it all out. And then from Monday, that's when it's it's going to start. But yeah, they, they've had to install loads of different things onto my computer so that it can be used at, at home and stuff. So yeah. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating stuff. I mean, one of the other things I guess, Dan, is this, this has been a hell of a baptism of fire for you. How do you feel that you and other young young journalists who just come into the trade, how, how are you coping with it? Um, I, it, I feel like, uh, I said this to uh, Liz the other day, the other day that it, I have been thrown in at the deep end, but like through no fault of anyone, like because I've just started reading the news um, just before this all sort of started happening. So I, I've been thrown at the, at the deep end but it is enjoyable especially because you know you're always in the know and, and and it's not it's always nice to at the moment there's always something new in terms of coronavirus there's always some new breaking news or something so it, it's there's always something to 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 get your hands on if you know what I mean so yeah it's in terms of me personally I think because I'm I don't think I'm feeling the effects of the whole lockdown thing yet and as much as other people might be because I'm engrossed in it all day so I think I might be used to the the coronavirus and all the news because I've been reporting it from it from the outset so maybe it hasn't quite hit home for me yet how you know how much of a of a of a hard situation it's going to be you know locked indoors for for maybe months for all the latest on coronavirus and how it's affecting us head to our twitter at cfm radio news lots of sunshine this afternoon feeling really mild too with a nice fresh breeze highs of about 15 that's the latest i'm dan davis cfm the one million pound cash register that's Dan Davis from Rock FM and CFM Radio, and we'll put a link in the show notes for Liz's article on the Northern Quota with all our all those stories from some of our former students. Do read that, as well as some of the other work that our students are doing on the site at the moment, because even with the lockdown and the end-of-term assignment deadlines, they're still finding time to produce their own stories for Northern Quarter, Quota and actually doing some really, really great work. Um, a reminder, you're listening to Bang to Rights from the Journalism Department at Manchester Metropolitan University. You can contact 
contact us on Twitter at RightsBang and let us know any of your own stories about your own reporting or studying under the lockdown. Jez, what, what kind of stories are you hearing from, from colleagues, former colleagues um, working in the industry at the minute? Yeah, well, a lot, lot of my uh, background is in, in local newspapers and um, it's always been a tough time for, for those uh, newspapers of late and uh, quite a lot of my old colleagues have been, uh, you know, let go in the, in, since Christmas, certainly. Uh, I noticed one of my former colleagues who's a feature writer at the York evening press she posted on facebook to say that i think quite a lot of staff are being put on furlough leave obviously the the newspaper's concerned that you know that um they need to protect jobs and 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 try and go down that route but i think a lot of the reporters are trying to keep working anyway from home and and sort of doing off their own bat anyway um and and sort of emphasizing the importance a bit like what liz was saying with certainly with radio the, the importance of um, of newspapers at a time like this and reporting those kind of local community stories and reporting on the strength of um, support within communities as well. And it, it just makes you realise the, the value of local news at a time like this. It's absolutely vital, you know, so... Um, yeah, yeah, we will come back to that in a in a in a little while. But I I know that for example, the National Union of Journalists had been campaigning quite hard on this over the last couple of couple of weeks um, against the closures and the the, the redundancies that are that are taking place in a lot of local newspapers and the the Irish section of the NUJ because um, the the National Union of Journalists covers both countries. They've been lobbying the 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 new government um, in Ireland as well as the outgoing Taoiseach. Um, to try and, you know, make change change the tax regimes and so on, and and actually increase bandwidth and uh, internet access for local newspapers and local news operations to allow them to get access to the wider world. Because, you know, as you say, keeping those local sources of news and information open at the moment is an absolute lifeline for hundreds of communities all around the UK and Ireland and more widely. And as Liz was saying, actually, it's interesting that probably there'll be whole generations of people who've, who've never really engaged with the news, certainly not to, at such a local level, um, who perhaps are doing now, you know, and can suddenly see the value of, you know, logging on to their local newspaper website and getting that quality of information that, that they wouldn't get elsewhere. Absolutely. No, yeah, so we'll come back to Greater Manchester and, and, and the UK in a moment, but we also wanted to look further afield. So our colleague Ember, Ellie Schember Critchley has been speaking to one journalist in Italy about the impact on daily life in what's seen as the epicentre of the outbreak in Europe. It is also confusing also for them. They are still repeating the same things and it makes me feel really uh, depressed. And I used to think more of the worst thing and the worst case scenario than the good ones. So I decided to stop for a bit and just read once a day, especially in the, in the evening time, to see how the day went. And nothing more than that, because really uh, news are toxic over here by now. Can you tell me a bit more about why you think that? Well, uh, I think that um, because um, also the way that they are counting that, they, they include everything. So you, you could be uh, like obese or have a diabetes already. And if you die, you die because of coronavirus or you uh, die um, because there, you already have other pathology, but it doesn't really matter. So they count, they count the, the all, the lot, and they never say nothing about people who are dealing with it at home because there are huge of people uh, of dealing with, uh, with this virus at home and they are perfectly like safe, you know, because they, they have the doctors who follow them and they're coping well with everything, but no one speak about them. Um, they all and all of, they always and all speak about that. And that's really bad. That makes you feel really bad, depressed, and you are not also able to see the bright side of the light any longer because of you are surrounded by negativity. 
Italian journalist Enrico Scaravato there. And because Ellie's currently in charge of our international journalism outreach programme at Manchester Met, she's also been speaking to journalists in Hong Kong about the effect of the COVID clampdown there. A short time ago, she made contact with the British photojournalist Tommy Walker, who's currently working in Hong Kong. It's just weird. Hong Kong's OK. I mean, it's people are still normal, but more people are staying in. But we've been dealing with this virus for like two and a half months now, so, or two months even. So... Um, it's just been pretty slow and boring. And then suddenly the virus has blew up in Europe and it's just like, it's made everyone w worry a bit more, um, you know, and obviously there's becoming more infections as well over here because of the people coming back over from Europe, which is annoying because we kept everything okay for a while, but now it's uh, we're in a different phase of it. So it's, it's a weird time and it's a weird time everywhere, but you know, it is a really weird time, and you're a, a freelance correspondent. How how has how has it been going from full on reporting the protests to the current state of Hong Kong? Oh yeah, it's a huge contrast. I mean, yeah, I mean, I've, I, I'm a correspondent for um, for uh, an English language publication in the Philippines, but I freelance to work for the Telegraph, the Mirror. Um, and other companies as well in Australia, Singapore. Uh, yeah, crazy. Last year was, um, you know, full on. It's funny because I've been comparing this. Like last year was so full on. Like there was like two or three demo demos every week. You know, there was always something, you know, going on. And then it just quietened down. And then like this virus has came on. And it's like, it's just, it's just contrast. It's like, it's like ridiculous. Like it's so, you know, to handle it mentally has been just just it's a whirlwind really um but yeah i mean i can honestly say i would you know from a from a work perspective i would definitely rather the protests be going on in some further capacity than they are at the moment um than obviously having to self-isolate for most of the week so actually that's one of my questions what what effect has the coronavirus had on on um, your your day to day reporting and and also what effect has it had on the protests? Well, the the thing is, you might re you'll read in plenty of places that saying, oh, the the virus is, the virus slowed down the protests, but no, that's not true. Like the protests actually quietened down in November. November was a huge month for the protests. There was three major things that happened. There was the, the local district elections, which was a landslide victory for uh, democracy. Um, you know, uh, for pro-democracy voters and candidates. It was a landslide victory against the pro-establishment, pro-Beijing. So that was one thing that the protests calmed down. Uh, that one of the reasons why the protests calmed down, uh, President Trump signed the Human Rights and Democracy Act for Hong Kong. That was another reason. And the Poly Univer Polytechnic University uh, battles, which lasted for about a week over about five different universities, they... Um, the, 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 the there were so many arrests and controversies with that them three things happened within the space of about two weeks um which inevitably uh, just quietened down the protests from then really and there's only been about three or four marches big marches since whereas whereas last year you were getting maybe one or two a, a week so the virus hasn't really i don't think the virus actually had a huge effect on it because the numbers and were always were already dwindling anyway and the protests were like calming down for now, people recouping, getting energy and seeing how the new, you know, the, the district election victory, um, victories, see how they pan out for 2020, see if they can see any changes or, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, so the, so the virus, I don't think it's huge yet affecting it, but there is some mini demos that just sporadically happen. And they're normally, they're normally anniversaries from a controversial incident. So the last major one was end of February, and that was um, to, to the anniversary of an incident that happened seven months prior. Um, the, there was rumours of someone dying in, in a train station, but no one really knows. Um, so they're the only things that I've noticed that can compare to what the protests were last year. Um, so yeah, it's it's this, there's little things going on, underground things, you know, there's little demonstrations online and stuff. They're like more cyber demonstrations now, and there's you know, petitions and stuff, but they're, they're nowhere near in the capacity, you know, the, the magnitude is what they were last year. 
um, at the moment. I mean, they, they potentially would have escalated again this year because there's uh, there's like council elections, there's more elections and things. So they might have, they might have escalated again, but um, they were already calming. So, yeah. That's all I can say. I've noticed really. a significant drop. Um, we, we have colleagues over mm. in, in Hong Kong and keep in touch regularly mm. with them. And, um, yeah. you know, that, that peak in November was, um, well, from a news perspective, was enthralling. But, um, you know, yeah, yeah, you just sure. couldn't keep up with it. And at, at that point, I spoke to a journalist um, and he he was predicting that this could go on for months, you know, or years but um, I don't know. I mean, the, the coronavirus, you, there's been such strict containment measures. What's been the effect on day-to-day -day news operations for you? Well, I mean, look, I, I freelance. So to look, to, I'm, not, I'm not like, uh, I'm not full-time. Like, I mean, obviously I was doing a lot more work during the protest, but I, I'm just freelance. So I've got other, I'm a travel, actually a travel writer. That's how I started, you know, in, in the media, if you like. So that's what was my main um, job and then obviously the protests happened and then I just turned into a news journalist overnight you know that's what happens you know like you just report on what you can so in terms of um, my personal workload look the protests um, you know up until about January that was obviously what I was doing most of then obviously the Wuhan sorry I call it the Wuhan virus but that's what it was getting called when I was first doing that so it was the coronavirus and um, the coronavirus um, was uh, you know, I've done a few pieces. People are, I mean, for local news, I'm, I don't really report on local news. I've been doing more interviews with people, people who have came from Wuhan, uh, you know, and things like that, or people who have been stranded on cruise ships when it's been inflicted with the virus. So I've been doing more special features because there's big fallouts with the, you know, with this sort of thing. It's not just about the, the stats and the reporting of, okay, there's 43 new cases in Hong Kong today. I'm not really on that. Um, side of things mine is more about the people affected and uh, the industry is affected and things like that so yeah. I've, that's what that's what i've been focusing on uh, tourism industry because i'm a travel writer and obviously any special features or any you know um people i can contact and just get their story across you know i interviewed two british backpackers for the mirror to the daily mirror two days ago um they're stuck in bolivia um you know i interviewed an american woman on the japanese diamond princess which was just got hordes of people who were, um, you know, infected. So there's a, that's, that's the sort of thing that, as a freelancer, well, I've been looking for more of the special features. Um, so it's definitely changed the direction of your reporting in, in a oh, way. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, if you compare it to the protests, the protests were front line, helmet on, gas mask on, you know, uh, and for me, I do it all. You know, I do words, I do you know photography and some videography, depend like online stuff. Um, so yeah, of course, and obviously you have to be in the, in in the within the action, and it's very uh, tiring. You know, one protest could last twelve, thirteen hours a day. You'd be running around. Um, you don't need any fitness regime or any diet when you're doing stuff like that because you don't really get to eat much or anything. So. That 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 sort of you know level of that that sort of understanding of what the day to day reporting job life was like compared to this is just it's different. And of course, people are staying in more, and they've been staying in more since the end of January. They've been staying in more since um, you know since obviously it got hold in China and people started to worry here. So people have been going out less, um, and people in all professions have limited their workload people are working online and work, working from home um, bars have been closing down you know there's been limited um, you know th things have been open for limited times so it's affected it's been we've been um, you know affected by it for two months now and it's affected everything tommy walker in hong kong now another casualty of coronavirus is a trip that we'd been planning for some of our students to visit the netherlands and to work with journalism students at the Hochschule in utrecht that's been put on hold by the shutdown, but it did make me wonder how journalists in the Netherlands are dealing with the crisis there. So I contacted the hosts of the Asymmetrical Haircuts podcast, Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Janet works with journalists in Africa and Asia teaching multimedia storytelling, and Stephanie works for the Reuters news agency in The Hague, 
Both she and Janet cover the detailed workings of the International War Crimes Court at The Hague. Janet and Steph also introduced me to Molly Quell, who's a US-born journalist who's based in The Hague and also covers international law, as well as writing for an English-language news service in the country. They're urging everybody to stay home. They're now also enforcing the kind of 1.5-metre distance rule from people on the outside and everybody who should work from home works from home. But the thing is, as we're both working as journalists, that is listed as a vital profession. So we could probably get away with not doing, uh, with not working at home. And I know my husband who works in a newspaper goes to the newspaper offices um, and will continue to do so. So it's um, the, the like Dutch-wide restrictions are similar and I am working from home but um, I as a journalist you're not you, you can't really read prosecuted I think for not doing it right yeah that's also my understanding yeah and so is there much pressure on on, on your husband for example Stephanie to go into work or are people being given an option to work at home if they want my husband, for example, is one of the few people in his newspaper that is kind of considered that he has to be at the offices, but nobody else is because he is the like chef out stories. So that's when you you're the last person to see all the stories before the newspaper goes to print. So they like somebody to be central. So when he has that shift, he has to be at the office, but everybody else is working from home. And didn't you tell me, Stephanie, uh, this is Janet joining in, that everybody in Reuters where you're working is, is working specifically from home, nobody's in the Reuters office? Yeah, the Reuters directive uh, went into effect, I think, even before the Dutch, uh, more kind of what they're calling an intelligent lockdown. But um, for the last two weeks, we've been all working at home. So everybody's working remotely, which is what I usually do for Reuters because the office is in Amsterdam and I'm near The Hague. So it's kind of my usual mode. So I'm less affected than my colleagues because I'm completely used to this way of working. And so Stephanie, and how is it working I've, out I've for been your working... colleagues then if they're, if they're not used to remote working? Has that, been, has that been slow to get off the ground or are people, kind of becoming, are, are people now becoming used to it? Uh, I seem like more of my colleagues now than I did before the lockdown, because now we have like a, a daily Zoom call where we kind of catch up in the morning and everybody is saying what everybody else is doing, which is obviously what I missed uh, because I was not in the office. So in that sense, for me, it's uh, more of seeing more of my colleagues at the office, albeit virtually, than, than actually I would normally. Uh, they have more trouble, I think, adjusting because they miss the office banter and also they don't really have, uh, because they work, were always able to go into the office, which is just like 10 minutes away, they don't really have designated office spaces in their house. Well, I have like a small room slash closet that was already set up for, you know, if I'm working from home. So I'm much more used to working from home, I think, than they are. And Molly, what are the practical issues, practical problems for you about uh, about the new working environment? Well, much like Stephanie, I am quite used to working from home. Both, uh, I work predominantly for a U.S. press agency. I do uh, what is contracted to be a day a week, although has been significantly more for an English language magazine that's here, both of which operate remotely anyway. Um, so in terms of that, not much has changed. Although, like Stephanie was saying, I'm actually having a lot more contact with my colleagues now, um, we did not used to, for this English language magazine that I'm here, have like a morning editorial meeting. We just sort of had a morning like editorial email. But now, you know, we're having a morning editorial meeting in the afternoons. I'm having like a call with the editor to sort of see kind of what's going on and who can handle stuff in the evenings if things are coming up. Um, with my colleagues who are in the U.S., we used to do basically everything by email. But now everybody has kind of sort of gotten into doing some stuff by Zoom. So we've had kind of more face-to-face -face connection, which is sort of nice in a way. Um, not that I would have, you know, wanted to encourage a global pandemic in order to have some more face-to-face -face contact with my colleagues who are on the other side of the world, but it has been a nice benefit. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so in terms of that, it's been fine. For me personally, the biggest adjustment is is that I like live with another human being who is very much a person who goes into the office every day, does not work from home at all, does not enjoy working from home, and now we are you know sort of sharing space together. So on a personal level, there's been some friction, but a, professionally, actually, I, I don't think I've had too much sort of too many problems. I was intrigued yeah. at the outset when I, I think it was you, Stephanie, mentioned that the, the, the kind of exclusion zone in the Netherlands is 1.5 metres and here it's two metres. I wonder whether COVID is more infectious over this end of the water. <laughs> but in terms of... I don't know. Maybe maybe we have... A... Well, in the US, they're saying six feet, which is like not either of those numbers. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> so, <neither>. you know, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> It's, it just um, it kind of feeds into this thing how incredibly confusing this is, even for us as information professionals. People are really used to um, um, packaging information up, getting it out there in the best possible way. I mean, it, it is so confusing in some cases as to exactly what the line is. And I'm sure that confusion comes sometimes because the politicians aren't very good at it. The main line here in the Netherlands is how antisocial it is to behave badly at this point. So everybody is trying to behave, I think, from what I can see around me, everybody is trying to behave a bit more socially, as in not infect others. But, you know, it is very difficult when the information is not so clear. Absolutely, yeah. Let, I, I want to move on to um, the International Court in a moment, because I think that's one of the, the things that certainly Janet and Stephanie, you have in common. Um, but um, just in terms of other stories, um, it's, are the agencies that you're working for and you're contributing to, are they interested in anything that's going on in the Netherlands apart from coronavirus at the moment? For Reuters, no, not really. I mean, except it, it's all linked. So Reuters is very much interested in the economic dimensions of the coronavirus. So, but basically all the all the requests we get are, are mostly coronavirus related. The only thing I've done in the past two or one and a half weeks that isn't coronavirus related is that there was one decision in the MH17 trial. But even that, you know, it all gets relayed to one or two paragraphs because the desk uh, in London is so overwhelmed with everything Corona that they get so many stories from around the world that there's just not time for. I mean, even if I wrote a different story and everybody liked it, they probably wouldn't get on the wire because it's not as kind of urgent or newsworthy as all the Corona stuff. So it, it, it get, kind of gets drowned out. And so what it kind of stories It has to be pretty are... dramatic to get, to get in. No, sorry, Janet. Carry I was on. just going to say it'd have to be. So I was just going to say something. It'd have to be pretty dramatic to have to to get in. Um, it it means a lot of the day to day stuff we might still be following. I'm sure uh, Molly and Stephanie, like me, both follow uh, some of the main courts here, and we follow what what is happening. There might be decisions. There might be. Uh, comments there might be pieces being written by by um, others or reports coming out or a book or whatever and we're we're kind of following it but it had to be really dramatic to turn into an actual story that 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 you could sell somewhere uh, do you agree molly well i've had a slightly different experience because the agency that i'm working for is only doing basically legal reporting um they have now have a dedicated corona person in Europe. So one of the things that I've actually been picking up in the last week is to pick up the work that he was doing before, um, which is basically covering court decisions, because despite um, the working restrictions in a lot of countries, of course, many of these cases were heard, you know, 18 months ago, a year ago. And so decisions are still coming down. So I did two stories about decisions from the European Court of Human Rights today. Um, the European Court of Justice has, in what I am sure is trying to make their lives easier, but what has made our lives much more difficult is they're releasing all of their decisions on Thursdays. So Thursdays are just sort of a nightmare of like 16 hours of back-to-back -back weird Bulgarian tax regulations for me. Um, <laughs> but those oh, stories we're still, we're still putting out. Um, and I think that's just cause I'm like sort of in like a weird niche. I know that other people who are kind of working for similar agencies are kind of in a similar experience. It's slightly surreal in a way because you're not, 
doing as much of the Corona stuff as everyone around you seems to be doing. Um, but I think for most other people, they're pretty much just, you know, scrambling to find stuff that is Corona related. I have a friend who, uh, a good friend who works for uh, Ars Technica, who was uh, putting up on Twitter earlier that he was looking for people to interview about watching esports um, in place of regular sports over the weekend, which, you know, is sort of a sports thing, but is, you know, definitely Corona related. So I, I get the impression that there's a lot of that. Yeah, what I noticed is that I usually, so I do Reuters mainly, uh, but I also, when there's big news in the Netherlands, I get a lot of calls because I'm on this like freelancer forum and I get like Scottish BBC, Irish radio, New Zealand morning shows for, for weird things. Uh, so when there was like an attack on the tram in the Netherlands a year ago, uh, I was inundated with calls and now it's completely silent because I think everybody is doing only Corona news all the time or only COVID news all the time. And so what actually struck me is that there's, if you're a freelancer, um, you probably have less, uh, you know, I'm lucky to be on the Reuters rotation to have these, to pick up these shifts because the, the court news is kind of dropped off the radar. They're not doing so much for the International Criminal Court. And all the other kind of fun Dutch news stories are not being picked up because there's such a small drop compared to all the all the Corona news. So I think um, I don't know what the other Dutch freelancers are doing about like general Dutch news um, or even Corona news, because I think it just doesn't make it onto the wire and, and companies are just picking up, I think, the because everybody's reporting on it. So they're probably just picking up Reuters and AP uh, and not asking people to do it themselves. One of the things I discussed kind of off mic uh, with, with Janet before we got started on this was whether there, whether the fact of this kind of international health crisis has meant you see people, more readers, more viewers, more listeners moving towards kind of trusted sources of news that we, we have kind of grown up to to become to be familiar with ourselves so so the BBC and in our case in the UK um, the main established newspapers agencies like Reuters I mean do you do you get the impression in the Netherlands that people are moving back to those traditional sources and trusting them more than they might have done social media sources over the previous five years or so what I do see is that um, people are very, very desperate for information and for accurate information. And there's a lot of, um, there are higher figures for all kinds of information shows for the main news, etc. Whether we're really seeing that people have a much higher level of trust in uh, main broadcasters, I don't know, because... Um, I think that that has been heavily uh, questioned, damaged in the in the rise of populism um, across the European continent. So I'll leave that to my colleagues, what they think about it. But I definitely see people, um, even sort of just anecdotally, my 16-year-old daughter can quote you the news of the, the moment. She knows what is happening um, hour by hour, the same as I do. Yeah, I think that I think you see that there's a lot of uh the Dutch like national broadcaster gets a lot of uh a lot more viewers and although they have lots of information shows and, and I think they are turning to things that are trustworthy. But I do also agree with Janet that the kind of trust in mainstream media has been damaged and it gets more questioned than it would be before. And there is this kind of substrain of people where, you know, before maybe like 15 years ago, uh, directives from the government to keep distance and to have a lockdown kind of wouldn't be questioned so much. And now you kind of get people like, oh, they're just overreacting. We're not really going to going to do anything or it won't hit me. So why should I stay at home? I think that that is more on the rise. Uh, but I don't know if that has to do with fake news or trust in the media. I think it has more to do with this general attitude of questioning anything and, you know, uh, having, taking your own opinion as a fact or taking facts as just opinions. And, and Molly, what's your impression from, you know, speaking to clients and friends in the States? I mean, yeah, well, you know, the U.S. government response to this situation has been such a 
not words that anybody can share with students or on the BBC. Um, so I think that that has really done a lot because what ends up happening is, is that if you're reporting on things and, and showing that, you know, the way that the Trump administration is handling things is bad, then you get accused of being partisan. So I know that like, you know, I worked in Washington, D.C. before I moved to the Netherlands. And I know that my colleagues who are there who are still in D.C. are really struggling um, with the sort of increased, I think, vitriol around this. I don't think that that was caused by Corona. I mean, I think that the attacks on the media, you know, as as Stephanie and Janet said, have have existed for years. But I think what has happened now is because there's so much more attention being paid to things. Um, you know, Stephanie mentioned the public broadcaster. I mean, I have not read so many NOS articles in my life until this last like week and a half. Um, and so I think that people are paying more attention and therefore you're, get, you're having the opportunities to have more... Um, yeah, more sort of commentary and conflict and, and pushback on stuff. And I think, you know, a lot of journalists are really running uh, ragged trying to, to cover this. I mean, I've worked a lot of hours in the last couple of weeks. I mean, I know I have a colleague who's based in Italy and a colleague who's based in Spain. I mean, I know that they are like running ragged. And so you're really tired and you're trying to put stuff out, you know, for 12 or 14 hours a day. You're worried about your own health. I mean, you're worried about your own sort of situations. And I think, you know, that is an environment in which mistakes get made and that those mistakes just get amplified um, by people who are not being sort of very charitable towards the people who are on the front lines trying to uh, trying to report about this. How do you I had one of those heart-stopping moments uh, when I was on call for Reuters. And... No, carry on, Stephanie. I had one of those heart-stopping moments when I was on the evening shift for Reuters and uh, my boss uh, was like, went out jogging and we we're like, everything kind of happened. Uh, we, we, so much had happened that day that we didn't think much more would happen. Um, so he went out jogging for 20 minutes. And while he went out jogging, the Dutch government announced that they would close down the border for non-EU citizens and that uh, I think they would stop all flights or something from, from non... Uh. So I had sent out two like snaps or alerts and then I got you get so much news alerts on your phone, uh, which is how these things happen, uh, that... I had sent one alert saying that the Netherlands shuts its borders for non-EU citizens and then couldn't find the app that sent me this alert where it, they quoted the prime minister as saying it. So then I got to the point where I thought that I had maybe like saw a tweet from Geert Wilders urging Rutte to close the borders <laughs> and mistakenly alerted that. And so I was having a panic attack and trying to call London to retract the alert. But London also overwhelmed, so nobody answered the phone in London, so couldn't retract the alert. And then called my other colleague in desperation, who said, oh, well, the worst mistake I ever made was to retract something that I shouldn't have retracted, and then I had to alert it again. So why don't we just take a breath and find out? And said, oh, no, I also saw that AMP news alert. Rutte did say it. And... Um, it turned out I'd sent the right alert. And by that time, so we're now like 15 minutes further, several panic attacks, five missed calls to my boss. My boss gets back uh, and and is like, what's going on? I was like, while you were gone, Ritte announced that they're <laughs> shutting the borders and, the, and, the, and there's no more planes coming in. And he's laughing. He's like, oh, you're so funny, this joke. And I was like, this is not a joke. This is not funny. <laughs> <laughs> Also, yeah. no, he literally thought that this was because I said I, I just kind of said it very offhand because I'd already had the panic attack. I was then kind of calming down, but he really didn't believe me. He was like, no, I mean, seriously. It's like, no, seriously, this is what happened while you yeah. went jogging. And he was like, mm, maybe not jogging anymore. No. Some some the, relief um, that at least the story the, was correct. The other Stephanie. thing that is absolutely, I was very relieved that that the story was correct. But even then, you know, that would be big news in other times. But even now, it was just a blip. Like we had to have the alert, and then you send two lines, and that's it. And that, uh, that was the story it. Moves yeah. On. Yeah. The other thing that that reminds me of is uh, the amount of fake news that has been circulating around, and of course, there are very good good. Um, projects which are working on that, a lot of uh, colleagues that we all know who are who are spending time countering it. 
but I mean, just in my own uh, immediate work circle, people who work with journalists, we do courses on countering fake news, on on uh, countering disinformation. Even within that circle, people were were circulating via WhatsApp um, on incorrect news to each other, and you just think, you know, surely we should at this point be able to uh, stop ourselves, to be able to check things before we circulate things. Uh, and it, I think that's a real problem that's go, that is going on, even amongst professionals. I'm sure that's correct. I'm sure that's correct. I mean, I think the, you know, even if there is a drift towards the kind of uh, safety net of, of more authoritative news sources, I think there is still a massive amount of false information and, and disinformation out there that uh, it, this, this, this crisis is not going to make that go away there's there's a much much wider issue uh, that, that needs that journalists and, and uh, news agencies will have to tackle much much longer term than this however I think we should probably wind up um, on that not not the most optimistic note but let's try and finish on a more optimistic note you're all and, and I'm included in this we're, we're working in unfamiliar environments with um, partners who are also working in unfamiliar environments on kitchen tables and and so on um, what are you all doing to, to stay sane? What would be your tips to anybody who's, uh, who's um, currently frozen indoors? Uh, we're, I'm, I'm translating Dutch poetry. Oh, wow. <laughs> 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 we, we were just- That's a tip. It's, it's, it's gotten bad, guys. That's all I'm saying. Um, well, that's, that's really highbrow though. I mean, I very... watch an inordinate amount of time watching like cat, pictures on the internet and, and pictures of animals and people sending their cats. We just, I just, we just got so tired of every night. So we have a dog, which is like a huge saving grace. So I think um, my first advice to, to anyone who was thinking about this would be to go to your local dog shelter if it's still open and adopt a dog, because then you have a reason to go out and walk around. And so we would go out on, you know, on dog walks with the dog in the evening and we would just have nothing to talk about besides Corona. And after, you know, a week of this, it, this was, it was draining and it was exhausting. And so we were looking just for like to find other things to talk about. And someone had gifted me a book of Dutch poetry um, about a year ago, which I had done nothing with because although I read and speak pretty good Dutch, it's, it's not perfect and poetry is hard. And so we started just trying to translate a poem a day and it gave us a lot of opportunity to kind of talk about like you know cultural references and poetry and like language things or whatever so at least we had something else to discuss so um that's that's what we've been doing well i think that it's has got to be the most highbrow and rewarding potentially rewarding suggestion <laughs> i've heard in in a long long time congratulations <laughs> thanks i guess i mean my my boyfriend has been playing a lot of video games, and I I am a big reader, so I've I've sort of uh, I hamstered, as the Dutch like to say, like eighteen books from the library, and will not be giving them back anytime soon. But um, yeah. Big thanks to Janet, Stephanie, and Molly for coming on the podcast, and do subscribe to Janet and Steph on Asymmetrical Haircuts for some really detailed and absolutely fascinating coverage of the international court. So, um, Dutch poetry translation, anyone? What what are you getting up to in your spare time? Any new skills that you're picking up? I've, um, let's think, I suppose having a little bit more time to uh, cook meals and not having to rush them so that they're ready for kids to go out to clubs, you know, football and piano practice. So it'd be quite nice to take a bit more time with cookery. Um, and also, I know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about people uh, learning the guitar. Well, I've, I do play the guitar, but this is quite a good opportunity now to sort of improve guitar skills. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we will come on to that in a wee bit more detail in a second. Liz, what about yourself? What are you up to in whatever the, what we call spare time? Spare time, yeah. I think most of my time is taken up with trying to get my head around all the new tech that we need to, to do this kind of uh, hookup on various things like Zoom. Zoom seems to have taken over my mm. life at the moment, um, Skyping and whereby and every other kind of um platform there is you know i'm doing sort of things on you know three or four new platforms a day so that takes up a bit of time i'm gonna have to develop new skills and haircutting i think i mean i do have an asymmetrical haircut so maybe i could do my own podcast uh, i see jez needs to learn how to shave i know uh, i'm, so I'm <laughs> taking the opportunity to see what i look like with a beard <laughs> yeah luckily you're you're not getting the 
Yeah, you're not getting the video version of me. It's just the audio line that I've got on. So you're, you're very, very lucky indeed. Um, but it does look like it. So people are actually, it does look like people are seriously picking up instruments like the guitar and so on. It seems actually one music shop near Altingham has cornered the local market for people who've suddenly found time to play the guitar and maybe guitars that have been sitting in the loft for years. Ian Shoesmith is BBC News digital editor for the Northwest. He told me more about that particular story, but first about how the central newsroom in Salford is managing with so many of their journalists, including himself, dispersed to work from home. It's, it's weird. Um, kind of, you, you, as a working journalist, you, you get very used to the, kind of the buzz and the, and the hive of activity of a newsroom. And, and that's one of the reasons why I love it so much. You know, I've been a journalist for 20 years and I still love the job as much as I did when I first started uh, back in 98 as a reporter for the Press Association. So, yeah, it is, it is very weird. Um, I've been working from home now since last Tuesday um, as part of the BBC's um, efforts to sustain our output. Um, I'm the digital editor, so I'm responsible for um, all the stories and content produced um, across Greater Manchester, Merseyside, Lancashire, bits of Cheshire, and also the Isle of Man as well. Um, so the uh, we, we're currently working with a, a, a small handful of reporters based in the office, and everybody else is worked is working from from home. So uh, we're using a variety of technologies to to be able to do that. Um, it's it's proven to be a, quite a big challenge, um, but we're, we're slowly getting there. And you know, kind of occasionally get a new curveball tossed in a direction. But you know, um, we you know we're, we're working pretty good, pretty well together, I think. And so, how how does the whole news gathering thing work? If you've got a group of reporters, are they are they able to physically get out to stories? Uh, not so much from the online team. Um, we're we're working with at the best of times. We're, we're we're very well integrated with our colleagues from TV and radio um, here at the BBC in the in the northwest. Um, our news desk, for example, physically, I sit next to the news gathering editor for Northwest Tonight, um, and opposite the news editor for Radio Manchester. So. Usually, on the average day, we're constantly swapping information around between us. So clearly, that's a lot harder um, at the moment. Um, but we we use a variety of tools like uh, WhatsApp calls, uh, Slack, um, and Skype um, uh, video conferencing. Um, one of our um, one of our um, reporters is still based in the office, and so he's acting as kind of the main kind of day to day news editor um, and feeding uh, information out to to reporters. Who are based from home, so the way we work in, in, in our patch is that if usually on the average day we'd have two or three sub editors and six or seven reporters um, based here in, in Salford and also in Liverpool and Lancashire and on the Isle of Man. So we, we're sort of used to kind of kind of um, sending in, in information and instructions and requests and kind of a copy backwards and forwards. So we're just having to basically take that to the nth degree, really. And I mean, one thing that um, I've been asking other people, um, you know, working internationally or locally as well around, around Lancashire is, how, is there any appetite for stories apart from coronavirus and COVID-19? I mean, we, you know, obviously we had that really horrible stabbing in, in, of that young girl in, in Bolton the other day, but, and obviously that's going to break through, but is it, is it hard to get people interested in stories apart from coronavirus? It's a really good question that, um, I think, Yes, we are. Because of the the technical challenges we're facing, um, the the copy flow is is harder. Um, there's no getting away from that. So kind of it means that we're a bit more stringent in our commissioning process. So kind of it's pretty much ninety percent coronavirus, ten percent other news stories. Um, an example with the um, uh, the story, the, the the tragic news about the the seven year seven year old girl being uh, being murdered in the in the park at the weekend. Um, I've been able to gain access to the press association wires, uh, not via our normal production system, but through fantastic uh, work done by the press association, and uh, they, they've set up a, a remote way of us being able to access the news wires. Um, we're also obviously kind of in touch with GMP, and we're getting all of their press releases. So it meant that one of my reporter um, colleagues was able to write the breaking news story of the the girl's murder uh, from home. Um, on Sunday evening, um, basically he kind of dropped everything, kind of put his tea in the microwave later, kind of got the story out there, um, as, as you'd expect from a regular a regular news operation. Um, 
the what we're trying to do with the coronavirus story is obviously we're covering all the the major significant um, information um, and, and, and news updates. We're also doing a fair few um, kind of uh, what we call public service information because as a public broadcaster, we see we see very much our role to be part news, partly providing public information. For example, stuff like uh, hospital closures, visiting times, all that kind of stuff. Because you know, because we we know that we are a trusted, a trusted provider of, of accurate and and important information. But what we're also trying to do is we're trying to tap into the the enormous well of positive news stories and communities sticking together. Um, so, for example, on Saturday um, before the the the, the extra layer of lockdowns were 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 implemented and introduced by the prime minister, um, I went up into Timberley Village. Uh, where there's an independent music shop, and obviously strict observing um, strict um, social distancing guidelines, um, I got talking to the the owner of the guitar shop and said, "Well, it must be terrible about the effect on business at the moment." And he said, "Oh, actually, far from it. Um, kind of, um, kind of everybody's really bored. They're wanting to, um, they're wanting to pick up their musical instruments, which they last played twenty years ago. So they're bringing in their old instruments and they're asking me to restring them for them." And so, so, oh, this is really good. This is actually a rare, positive, good economic business story. So I got my iPhone out. I did. I took a few uh, GVs of um, of his shop inside and out. Then recorded about a minute thirty interview with him on my iPhone, and he was a great talker. I sent all the rushes back to one of my colleagues, um, who's a lot better than I am at making digital video. She made that video. Went out yesterday on the England index as well as the local news index, and also made the UK front page as well. Um, so we're constantly looking for those positive news stories. Um, and, great, you know, and that's yeah. that's, great, that's great really story, Ian. I'll, I'll I'll put that in the in the show notes for when we come to it. Actually, full disclosure, my bass guitar is sitting right next to me here in the in the <laughs> desk, and I, I'm getting in quite a lot of practice in spare moments during the day. I, th- I think people are going to be far better musicians, and uh, g- given the, uh, the the low drone of uh, lawnmowers across Timpley this afternoon, I think everybody's everybody's garden is going to be absolutely spotless by the end of this. Yeah, yeah. But on a slightly more serious note, have you seen much of an increase in traffic? Because I've I've read I've read some people saying that at times of crisis like this, and we know from election times and so on, but generally at times of crisis, people do kind of come back to the BBC, despite all the concerns about fake news and all those criticisms that, that people get, that people are coming back to trusted news sources now, established yeah, we, newspapers, established news outlets in the BBC. Are you finding that? We, we definitely are, yeah. I mean, for example, I was reading earlier on the, on the BBC News website, funnily enough, that apparently Boris Johnson's announcement got 15 million people tuning into BBC One last night, which is phenomenal. You know, you do... You, you, you barely see those figures, you know, for the World Cup final, you know, and you know, huge events like that. Um, for for online, um, we get uh, our um, weekly statistical bulletin through, um, and uh, last week, I think just just for content produced in the northwest of England, we had four point one million unique browsers, and in the average week, we probably get kind of two two and a half, maybe up to three million in a very busy week, you know. So the, the numbers are definitely there. Uh, we can see that uh, we use some um, software like uh, CrowdTangle um, and uh, sorry, uh, Chartbeat, rather, which basically tells us in real time how many people are viewing our content. And there's been a, a noticeable spike, which, which for for everybody, kind of, you know, all of me and my team, you know, kind of, obviously, you know, kind of, you know, we're, we're people first, journalists second, but and we're all working in very difficult circumstances. But that that's a real, real morale boost um, to us, knowing that. What we're producing um, is, is being consumed in large numbers, and the fact that people do turn to the BBC and, and trusted news providers in times like this, um, you know, it's it's a responsibility which you know we we do take incredibly seriously. And you know, I've been at the BBC for twenty years, and you know, kind of, I'm still incredibly incredibly proud to say, look, I'm a BBC journalist and I'm a BBC editor. You know, it it, it means a lot, and you know, uh, hopefully people are getting you know are getting what they need from us. Okay. Well, look, Ian, we'll leave it at that. Thanks very much indeed. I mean, I hope I hope that continues, obviously, but I um, hope you and, and your family, friends, loved ones and colleagues all, all stay well in the current circumstances. Thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Rights. No problem at all. Thanks. Cheers, Pete.
Ian Shoesmith from the BBC News website, and you'll find a link to that story and an interview with the guitar shop owner, Rick Manning, in the show notes. But I just want to pick up on that issue that I raised both with Ian and with Janet, Steph and Molly in The Hague, whether the health emergency has rebooted general trust in established news organisations such as the BBC and traditional newspapers. Now, Jez, we were talking earlier on about local newspapers. Liz, have you got any any thoughts about kind of the more national stuff? Because the BBC... As, as Ian mentioned there, the BBC's had a, a huge hit on its website in terms of numbers. Yeah, and ITV and Channel 4 News are reporting the same as well. It seems, you know, as we've seen in the past, when there were these kind of national global crises, then people do turn to those um, national broadcasters, um, whether they're more trusted or whether people just feel they have the, the breadth of, um, of coverage. I don't know. I mean, there's also plenty of, you know, the... the comments sort of comments that's becoming um familiar these days of people say oh um fake news or they're exaggerating i can get most of my all my information off social media but definitely more and more people are, are going to the news and um also you're seeing a lot of fact checking services verification services as well and people you know reminding us that we need to be really careful about what we're seeing online. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of people, for example, you know, doing data visualizations of, of how this is all working without having any sort of epidemiological knowledge, really, which you, you need in order to interpret these, these figures. But then you see something like the, the Financial Times, for example, and, and some of the, the, the bigger news organizations which have um, big data teams at their disposal and statisticians are able to do something much more reliable because they're talking to the experts in the field that enable them to do the um, you know the trustworthy content because they have those resources to to throw at it. Talking about resources, the BBC have also put on hold the um, huge round of job cuts yes. that they were going to be doing in news. They've delayed that because they know they need every news journalist they could get. Um, so, so that's interesting as well. I think they delayed um, um, yeah, with, the, with the free licenses for the over 75s. Over 75s, yes, yes. Yeah. So the, the plans to um, make that only available for people on benefits, that's been put on hold as well because, again, they, they need that license free. So it'll be very interesting, and I'm sure there's academics already planning their um, research now about how this is impacting on people's attitude towards public service broadcasting and the license fee. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I was talking to a, a doctor friend of mine who, who works back home in, in Scotland, and he was commenting on how, you know, the fact that, for example, Dyson now is converting its expertise and its machinery into, into producing ventilators, and a lot of clothing companies are now shut down their main output, but are, are, are making masks and such like instead. And I just wonder mm. for the future whether this whether there is this parallel in journalism that people will kind of come back to public service journalism and see the value of it and while public service journalists themselves see the value of what they do um in in a whole new light jess what do you think i could completely agree and full enough um one or two of the level six students who were doing law and ethics uh their question this this uh this year is is to do with fake news and the effect on uh, democracy and the media and the trust in the media and this is uh, this is in a way is a bit of a gift for that question with you know think about all those um on social media those photographs of um army vehicles that were out supposedly uh, ahead of the lockdown actually there were people on on social media calling that out and saying it was fake news but actually i, I do think we will see a swing back to the uh trusted uh, mainstream media, I think, on the back of this. OK, so let, let's try and leave it for today on, on that positive note. Thanks, thanks both. That, so that's about it for this episode of Bang to Rights. Now, at this point of the year, with the marking season about to start and the end of term just round the corner, we'd normally call it a day. But these are not normal times, and so we'll try to keep things going for as long as we can and as long as we have useful things to talk about from the journalism department and maybe actually more widely around the MMU campus. Anything that we think will fit the brief for the podcast. So do please get in touch on Twitter 
at Rights Bang if there are stories you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Remember, you can subscribe to Bang to Rights on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher, and that way each episode will drop onto your feed. You can also get us on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed, and that's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. But in the meantime, we have been Bang to Rights. Thanks, Liz. Thank you, Pete. Goodbye. Thanks, Jez. Thanks, Pete. And thank you for listening. Stay well. We'll see you soon.